name is Johan Kalilian. As an executive coach, I time travel with people. I get to help people create their future from their future. One of the guiding principles that we use as coaches is how future-based language transforms the way the world occurs to us. In other words, the way you speak about tomorrow shifts the way you look at the world today. It also shifts how you interact with that world. Join me as we write a letter from the future with love. In moments of conflict, my wife has said, you always think you're right. And I tend to push back and say, well, I mean, not always. Yeah, I I know that isn't the best way to reply in a fight, but she's right. You know, I, I, I think I'm right quite often. And before you get all self-righteous on me, I know I'm not alone. Right? We've all experienced these moments where we believe we're the ones who are right and the other person is wrong. It's the other side that needs to get their act together and 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 agree with us already. Right? Then our relationships would be healthier. Then our work life would be simpler. Then our country would be more peaceful. You see, I have many of these moments. The other day my wife and I we disagreed on whose idea it was to hold our elopement dinner indoors, and we both swore that it was our idea. Right. It's, it's not something that we actually fought about. Right. It didn't become a big argument, but we both seriously thought we were right. And we did what mature adults do, which is we agreed to disagree and we went about our day. And right before I went to sleep that night, it, it, it hit me. She was right. I mean, I, I kind of pictured the whole thing, too. I pictured who made the decision at what time I could see all of it. And the next day I had this choice, like, what do I do? Do I not mention anything or do I bring it up? So I decided to to be the mature adult and say, hey, um, you were right. I was wrong. And she celebrated for about 15 minutes and then she proceeded to go about her day. Have you ever been in a situation like that? One where you know you're right, like you're absolutely certain of it. Then after reflecting, or even after you know some Googling, you realize you were wrong. You were very, very wrong. And let me ask you something. When you're wrong, how does it feel? See, I want you to pause and reflect on that for a second. As a coach, this is a simple exercise that we do sometimes with folks at trainings. It's the invitation into noticing the sensations we experience when we are wrong about something. Usually we hear people say, when I'm wrong, I feel guilty. I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed. I feel angry. I feel dumb. I mean, you name it. Essentially, everyone says it sucks when you're wrong. And that's why everyone hates it, right? That's why we hate being wrong, because of the feelings that we associate with it. But what does being right and wrong really mean? An article by George Lee states that our ability to distinguish between right and wrong stems from morality. And that sometimes what feels morally right isn't always right. Seems like common sense, right? See, I'd argue that there's a distinction between being wrong and feeling wrong, which provokes that strong and outward reaction. I believe that the feeling we associate with being wrong is actually connected to discovering that we are wrong. I'll say that one more time. The feelings we associate with being wrong is discovering that we are wrong. With that being said, let's take a look at the insurrection that took place at the nation's capital on January 6, 2021. Who was right? Who was wrong? You see, the people storming the capital said they were on the side of truth and justice. The people defending the Capitol said they were on the side of truth and justice. Now, do you see the dilemma we're in? We currently live in a society where everyone feels like they are right. Because as we discovered just a second ago, even if you're wrong, you feel right. 
the question becomes, how do we conduct ourselves in this world? How do we help people choose what is right, even when they are wrong? How do we carry ourselves when we are actually right? See, what if we started with with compassion? If you're listening to this and you think you're right, can you have compassion for those you deem wrong? Can you see things from the other side? Are you willing to stop, slow down, and just consider what it's like to be on that other side that you just can't seem to agree with? When you do that, you may just come to realize it's you that's been wrong this whole time. And wouldn't that be something? Part of why I wanted to bring you on is to talk about, you know, the events of January 6th and and how did that event, one, you know, obviously affect us now. But because the topic of our show is From the Future with Love, I want to hear your perspective. Um, and we're going to have you put on like the time traveler hat. It's like, how how did the insurrection of January 6th actually affect the future of America? Yeah, well, if you're looking at the insurrection of January 6, 2021, you got to look at the prologue. I think you have to look at the build up to it, which was a leader who was in office, uh, who did many things. Uh, and if you look at it from a Christian perspective, there are a lot of Christians who dismissed everything that he did, that only trying to defend instead of correct. Uh, that that leader ends up losing, but not admitting he lost and, mm-hmm. and manipulating some of his followers into believing that he didn't lose and and pushing a lot of conspiracy theories that many Christians accepted. These conspiracy theories kind of drove people into a rage until up until when they got there on, you know, on the 6th. And there was an insurrection on the Capitol uh, where there, for, for whatever reason, there wasn't as much security as there should have been. And they got into the Capitol and kind of um, wreaked havoc. Uh, the saddest part of everything that went down on that day is that there were people who were part of this group holding Jesus save signs. And there were there mm-hmm. was people who were calling themselves Christians doing things that had nothing to do with cr- the Christian um, love imperative, justice imperative, uh, or the Christian ethic in general. Uh, and so we saw what happens when we allow our political affiliation to become religious in nature. Mm-hmm. We saw what civic religion looks like, what, what uh, idolatry in the civic space looks like. And um, it, it was a sad moment. Uh, and I hope that in the future uh, that we, 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 we take the lessons from what we saw from that, that day, but also the prologue, what led up to that day, and make sure that it never happens again. And make sure that we, we center the gospel, we center love and truth. Because if truth was part of that conversation, you wouldn't have had all these wild conspiracy theories. But if love was with the conversation, you wouldn't have had that same kind of reaction. And if faith was part of that conversation, people wouldn't have been so dependent on the lead leader. They would have had more comfort in the person that they they truly should be serving. From your perspective, what would be the solvent there? Like what would ultimately bring, when it comes to the divided world of Christians, what brings the two sides, three sides, four sides, like everybody ultimately together? When it comes to Christians, it should be Christ. Yeah, it should uh, be it, Jesus, it, it right? Should be, it should be. It should be. It should be peacemaking. Uh, it should be to say we may not agree, but we have certain convictions. We have certain imperatives that come with our faith that come before all of this madness. That yeah. means I can disagree with you, but I don't have to act in a certain way. That means I may not share. We may not share. Be in the same class, or we may not be in the same demographic but I'm going to fight for your human dignity anyway. I'm going to push back against my party when they violate you or insult you, and I hope you do the same for me. When Christians become peacemakers, and I want to be very clear, a peacemaker is not somebody who just ignores injustice and unrighteousness. That's not peace. It's someone who's willing to have conflict to take care of those things, but wants restoration, uh, wants healing, wants wholeness, um, right relationship. Uh, when when we decide to be peacemakers and 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 put the partisanship uh, aside for a minute, that's what can bring this country back together. That's when you can see conciliation and healing. But until then, it's not going to happen. And you better believe me, this country can't come together if Christians can't come together. This is what really what makes this a, a really complicated situation from my vantage point is I, I watched video the other day of some of the people who stormed the Capitol and they they basically started to pray 
Like they were in there basically thanking God for allowing them to get past the guards and get in and they were doing God's will. And I think this is part of what makes this kind of, for me, when we say like, well, so how do we really connect when there's people who believe that's God's will? And and how do you convince people? Because from my standpoint, I'm like, wow, there's there's some serious delusion going on here. And so how do how do you help people, I guess for lack of a better word, wake up or 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 see the truth or maybe even go back home to God as opposed to following these these rabbit trails of deception? First of all, we have to be able to have conversations. And so if I go up to somebody who was in that insurrection and all I have is condemnation and 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 ill will, then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. If I go into that, and, and so none of this would mean they, they're dismissed from consequences. I want to be clear about that. Right, right. But if I go into that conversation trying to understand how they got to that point, willing to examine myself, willing to exa- you know admit where I got something wrong, and I'm really trying to have a conversation to understand instead of trying to win, I might actually connect with that person. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I think we see, you know, I was, I was really saddened by how how many christians i was upset about this i was i was frustrated i was i was angry for a minute and that's okay but what hurt me a little bit was how some christians only saw something that they could laugh at or something that they could say well this is why my group's better than your group Mm -hmm. but didn't have any compassion for people who are obviously hurting right Mm -hmm. people who are screaming and doing crazy things that are not normal at all that are not healthy that are signs of you know, psychological issues or signs of serious emotional issues, and it's being kind of projected onto what's going on in the Capitol. And all we have to say is something negative or to, to kind of lampoon it. We got to be better than that. Uh, yeah. We have to be able to have compassion, even for people who we think are, think are having the worst of behavior. What's behind that? What's the story on that? Uh, can, I, can I set aside what's going on in, in my community for a second to also consider what they might, what might be going on with them. That's what Jesus did. Right. Um, I didn't see a lot of that, uh, even from a lot of uh, Christian influencers, and that was disappointing. Um, I think it's, I think it's okay to be frustrated, even angry yeah. about what happened. That was not okay, but that can't be our only lens or uh, reaction to something that that was that dynamic. Uh, we need to look a little deeper. I feel like that's connected to this question of like, who do we need to be today? right now in order to ensure that we have a better future? I think, again, I think we need to be peacemakers. We need to say, we're going to do everything in our power to come together, which means to me for white evangelicals uh, saying, you know what, we're going to come out of our comfort zone and we are going to do something about racial justice. We are going to look into this and look at it with a different lens and listen to what our brothers and sisters are saying. For somebody's in the Democratic Party, we are going to try to understand what's why somebody may have voted for Trump. We are going to try to understand what, what's been called back row America, where you have, I mean, in certain communities, you have, you know, the 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 life, you know, the life uh, time of of some white males has gone down. The life expectancy has gone down, right? In this day and age, because they're dying from deaths of despair, which these deaths mm-hmm. of despair are suicides and overdoses. If 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 you're in urban America and you're African-American like myself or a person of color or whatever, and you can't have compassion for that, then we have to reevaluate who we are. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying, we got to be able to look on the other side and truly try to understand except, in, instead of just defending our narratives. And, and that's really what gets in the way. Each culture has their own narrative that they've created, which is partially fictional because it's right. too convenient, right? right? And we hold on to it so tight that we could care less about what's going on with the other side and how they're suffering. You can't do that as a Christian. Uh, and until we're willing to let go of those narratives and really care about our brothers and sisters, even if they're acting ugly towards us, even if they're somewhat bigoted, even if they're acting out in a way that hurts us or, or, or hurts other people, can we have some compassion for, for them? Uh, again, yeah. that doesn't mean they don't have to face any consequences. But can we be Christ-like enough to see past our narrative to the person? Because everybody has a testimony. Everybody has a story to tell. And we have to care about it. 
Now, here's the thing. Like, you know, when it comes to you and I talking, I feel like I can sit here and be like, yes, yes, amen. And then I think about my friends who essentially have a different religion, right? Whether that be a different faith system altogether, whether that be, you know, the religion of nationalism or just not believing in God. You know, I think there's a religion of being right in America right now. Because I think when you and I speak, we could be like, yes, 100%, like we want to combat things with compassion and love and and truth and justice. Um, So how do you even like invite somebody who's like, look, I don't get it. Why would I show compassion to somebody who wants to hurt me? Why would I show compassion to somebody who wishes my demise in some way, shape or form? Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, as a Christian, I, I mean, I, all I could, the most I could say is you just got to go back to the Gospels, man. I mean, that that's 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 Christianity one on one. I mean, that's that's stuff we learned in Sunday school early on. Uh, that's what love is. Love thy enemy. What, what, what do we think that means? Uh, love thy neighbor. That's what makes us different than the world. Look, it's a very reasonable conclusion to say that. I don't understand how I could love somebody who doesn't love me. That's what the, for the world. Yeah. That, that makes all the sense in the world, but that's why we're different. <laughs> you, you see what right. I'm saying? Um, and that doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean that you ignore things that they've done, but that's why we're different because we are able to do that even when others can't. And that's what I'm saying is like, how do you invite the person who's like, look, I'm not a Christian though. I, I have you know, you can say Jesus told me to do this. So that's why, that's what you want to do. But, like, I just don't understand okay, why logically I would want to do that, you know? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a practical uh, reason for it, too, which is that vitriol really solves nothing. So we have this whole conversation about civility and all this other stuff, and people are like, no, no civility. There's, you know, that time is up for that. But the, what they don't realize is incivility is, is not effective. Incivility, what's, what's, the, what's the alternative? The alternative is getting is violence. It's it's war. You think that's mm-hmm. a better situation to be in? So if you really want to make things happen, sometimes you have to suck up your pride and work with other people and try your best to understand other people. Because even from a practical point of view, that is a better way to get things done than fighting all the time. That's why we create government, right? That's the mm-hmm. whole point of having government and having laws and all this stuff is so that people don't have to have uh, century-long battles, you know, family feuds and all that stuff about about certain issues, they can work together and we can find solutions together. Uh, that's the that's the whole point of what we're trying to do. Yeah, and I've heard you know I've heard you talk about it. Seems like part of the heart and soul is like okay, I'm I'm calling people to be peacemakers. I'm I'm calling people to have this this heart of compassion. And what's interesting to me is like, how do you invite people into peace when they're so afraid? Because like you were talking about earlier, like we villainize the other side, right? Like we turn one another into monsters. And then we talk about peace. So it's like, well, how, how do we create peace when everyone is so afraid villainizing the people on the other side? So, so you're talking about not just Christians, just everybody. Yeah, I'm just talking about as a whole, like what for, you know, from a human perspective, how how do we really create peace when we're just deathly afraid of one another. I mean, again, I think people just have to understand history a little bit better. Um, this country had some serious issues at its founding, uh, some sad issues when it comes to slavery and all that. But some of the ideas behind our Constitution and behind how this country was set up, and, and Frederick Douglass does an excellent job of, of talking about this, talking about kind of the beauty of our Constitution, the 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 opportunities that came with it as a mechanism, but also some of the failures. But if you're looking at some of the the great parts of it, that's what it did. It took people from different spaces and gave them a common vision. Um, It gave them uh, enough stability to be able to uh, kind of anticipate what would come to them, what they were owed and what, you know, and what they, uh, what people weren't, weren't going to be able to do to them. And so this democracy in a way was our ability to do that. So I think one of the things we have to do is find common ground. We have mm-hmm. to push away these people, the, the folks who are always trying to stoke issues. Now, don't run away from racial justice. Don't run away from the issues. But there are certain people on both sides of the aisle that are always trying to stoke something that don't want you to get past these issues because they really benefit from the issues being there. They're not right. really trying to get to the solutions. 
Uh, and so one of the things we have to do is kind of push those folks uh, out of the conversation a little bit and really start saying, this is our common ground. This is our common vision. Um, and, and help each other to see that we're not enemies, that, that we really have to sit down and say, look, when I do well, you do well. And that this isn't a zero-sum game, that we have to have kind of a, an abundance mentality. Uh, and and it, it's a real, I mean, I could write a whole book, right, on this subject, mm -hmm. but it really does come down to a common vision and understanding our common ground and understanding our history and how it's been done throughout history. Look at what Paul Kagame did in Rwanda. There's many other examples of true leadership that comes through and says, we have to do this differently. And that means me and my tribe being self-sacrificial as well as you and your tribe. And so sometimes uh, it starts with us just saying, you know what, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna be self-sacrificial first so I can show you that I'm working in good faith. Curiosity killed the cat. Are you familiar with that cliche? Many of us have heard it before, but do we know its origins? Its earliest form is attributed to British playwright Ben Jonson in his 1598 play titled Every Man in His Humor, which was performed first by William Shakespeare. You see, I mentioned this because I think this phrase is dumb. I think it's like really, really dumb. Curiosity doesn't kill cats. Coyotes do. At least that's why my wife won't let our cat outside. It's not because of curiosity, right? She doesn't say, don't let the cat outside because curiosity will kill it. No, she doesn't even talk like that. That's not my wife's accent. I don't know. It just it just sounds funnier, right? So, but okay, let me back up. Let me not be so hard on the phrase because it's it's kind of true. Curiosity does kill some things. Curiosity kills ignorance. It kills hatred. It kills division. It kills all the mindsets that have our world in this mess. Because once you open your heart and mind and ask new questions, you become compassionate. You grow and you learn to unite with those that are different. See, imagine if we lived in a curious world, a world that is curious about the other side, right? Interested, asking these new questions, not so sure or certain or judgmental about that other side. According to a journal by Paul J. Sylvia and Alexander P. Christensen, the trait of curiosity has two approaches for most people, downward and upward. They explore how a broader sense of curiosity emerges from a large pool of openness to experience, that looking upward at curiosity would offer an opportunity for growth and development. I mean, that's what coaching is all about. It's about asking the right questions and being curious. It's about knowing that you don't know and choosing to grow in those areas. In our unified future, this is the posture that we take as a society. We are compassionate and curious as we ask the questions that may limit us from a better world. We live from an empowered core where we have more questions than answers because that's what truly unifies us. You see, as a coach, I help people unearth the beliefs that hold us back by, pe by being curious and shining a light on what we can't see on our own. Now imagine if we did that for one another. That's the future I want to live in. That's the place where unity flourishes. The events on January 6th, the insurrection that took place is actually something that catalyzed a very hopeful future. Mm, mm. You know the you know the nature uh, of the show and even how I think, <laughs> and and let's start to imagine right as you come to us from this future place where what we've done is we've created a a unified world where we're actually more you know you talked about the schism of today, mm -hmm. and sometimes people talk about like oh we're we're more di divided than ever, mm -hmm. and I'm like well if you look at American history we've kind of been divided for a long time like there's been. <laughs> Division yeah. over and over and over again. When have we been united? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like we we have the name United States of America, but there's been a lot of division. And so what if what if what happened is actually the beginning of a truly new era hmm. where this country becomes more unified than ever? And part of that is because we started to question things. We started to root ourselves in 
and curiosity is um, in curiosity in, instead of rightness, you know, instead of being married to our perspective and thinking what we believe is the way we started to open ourselves up to a number of ways, a number of perspectives, you know, what, what the other person feels, thinks and can see. So I want you to start to even imagine uh, a future that you could live in, that you come from, where we actually value questions over answers. Like how, how did that future come about? Well, let me speak to something uh, real quick just about to what you said, because this is the first thing that came to mind before I even get into like what that future looks like uh, with regards to the division of the United States right now. I, I actually like that you said that, that in some ways that this rupture that we saw with the insurrection at the Capitol uh, is going to do the opposite of despair, that it leads to something truly transformative. I mean, obviously, that would be the ideal situation. Yeah. But I'm also thinking like uh, the United States, in some sense, is no different than a self, is no different than a body in, mm. in a very real way, which is that like sometimes there are schisms that exist within our own selves that it takes truly being torn down in order to rebuild. And usually that tearing down can only be rebuilt if there is a genuine level of curiosity which is to say like when you hit rock bottom as a human being, uh, whether you're an addict or whether it's uh, despair or suicidal tendencies or something like that, you have to get curious. Otherwise, without curiosity, you will not rise to the occasion and you will not pull yourself out from those depths. So it requires that, that level of curiosity to repair. So I just want to acknowledge that, that I think that what you're suggesting is right on the money that if there is going to be a repair in the future is as lovely as we might imagine it to be. It comes from curiosity as opposed to revisiting the same old answers or feeling like we have the same old answers. So what does the, sorry, I just wanted to like. No, and I think, I, I think, that, well, I would say thank you because I think that's spot on. You and I have talked about this quite a bit when it comes to even like relationships, who we are as men, turning points in our life. And I think both of us have experienced tremendous heartbreak mm. in the past. And that has opened us up, you know, to, hey, w- like, what am I missing? Mm-hmm. Where where do I need to grow? Um, what are the, even like, what are the areas of my life where I've been selfish, where I, maybe I put myself in a situation with a person mm. that wasn't great for me? Mm-hmm. Um, why am I settling for less? Like all these questions that come from a curious place, I do think came from pain. Mm in relationship came from suffering. Um, and I think that's, that's spot on to say, it's not just the addict. It's also, you know, us making decisions over and over and over again and kind of hitting our head against the wall. And maybe that's part of where we're at in terms of American, the American psyche is, Mm. you know, we've been trying to do things the same way over and over and over again, and and it's not working. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is the turning point. So we could say, Hey, let's, let's truly try some different things. Let's reapproach. Let's examine. Let's ask new questions so that we can experience a brand new future. Absolutely. Because, yeah, even going through relationship heartaches or thinking about that, that usually you can deal with that in one of two ways. Well, you can deal with it multiple ways, obviously. But one way is to explain it away, right? The reason this happened is because X, Y, or Z. Like you have immediate answers for the reasons why shit went sideways, shit didn't work out, your life fell apart, et cetera. You've got immediate answers uh, and immediate explanations, which is one way. The other way is to sit in that discomfort and pain for as long as necessary until you get curious and begin asking questions like, why does this continue to be a pattern? Why does this pop up continually? Why, why, why? Asking those kinds of questions is where growth spurs as opposed to it coming from explaining the shit. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly, you know, you know, that's part of what I get to do as a coach where people look at some of the results that they've created in the past, some of the systems that they've created, some of the beliefs that they have. And what we get to do is just, we get to help them notice some of these beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, we get to help them question them. We get to help them move away from their judgments of themselves, mm. of their world, of of the life that they live. And we get to help them move away from their rightness because they think they know so much when it comes to here's what my life is. Here's what the world means. Here's how other people you know, think about me. 
and then we say, hey, let's just let's just put on this mode of curiosity mm. and let's start to ask new questions, different questions, and even this idea that what if like the quality of our life is dependent on the questions that we ask, mm. right? Like you know, the types of questions that we step into really determine our future. Yo, the quality of your question determines the quality of your life. Come on now. <laughs> Should we just end it right here? We just end <laughs> that's, the the end. that's the end right there. No, I think that's true. So then to extrapolate from that, because I think this is the question that you are asking is like, okay, that's true of the self, right? That's true of the individual self in the same way that like the quality of your questions determines the quality of your life we could then presume that the quality of the questions we ask as a nation is going to determine the quality of our nation. Right. Right. And I feel like we're immediately bypassing the opportunity to ask really deep questions right now, based on that insurrection that happened on January 6th. We've immediately moved into explanation mode as opposed to inquisitive mode. That's Mm -hmm. my general sense of things. Um, so what would it, what kind of, what are the quality questions that we ask in the future then? I think yeah. that's kind of what you're asking me. Yep. That's exactly it. What are the quality of questions? Um, I mean, I think one, one question, oh shit. And, I mean, and right, like a, these are the questions that bring us together. Hmm. So this is part of what we're talking about is like the question, because right now I feel like we, we, there is a perpetuation of divisive types of questions. Mm-hmm instead of what are unifying questions? Hmm. What are unifying questions? I mean, I'm immediately thinking of, um, you know, there are indigenous knowledges, uh, and I'm thinking here specifically of the question of like, how do we live our life now for the seventh generation? That's like a, 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 Hmm. Among many indigenous people of uh, North America, that that has been a central question, which is to say, how do you live for yourself while simultaneously living for the next generations? Um, that that would be a great governing question, since mm-hmm. so much of the decision making that happens in our nation, both at the local, state, and federal level, is all about now, now, now. And surely that's because we are pressed with problems right now. But the answers to these questions that are plaguing us right now are always like, how do we fix the thing right now so that we can survive right now? As opposed to thinking about it in a much more three or four or five or eight dimensional way, which is to say, how do we answer this question for now while also answering it for generations from now? Um, in other words, just saying future-based questions. Future, yeah. If we could ask, <laughs> is that what I'm saying? I guess I don't have that's, the same lingo. That's, that's it. <laughs> no, that's it, right? That, and that's the that's the very part of the reason why you know this show exists because I believe the same thing. It's like if we start to ask future-based questions, then we join together, we band together to actually create that future. Because I think part of maybe what people struggle with is they think, oh well does being unified mean we have to agree on everything, Mm. right? And it's not about, like, we can be unified. We can have a unified future where we don't agree. Because right now what happens is you don't agree with somebody and then you vilify them, you know, you you judge them, you you know, call them a monster, idiot, crazy, Mm -hmm. whatever. And then there's no breaking of bread. There's no joining in terms of, like, being able to sit at the same table. So... I think that's part of what I want to help people move away from is, yes, hey, let's build this thing together. So to go to the question that you're asking, we're going to build this beautiful future. Mm -hmm. Let's ask questions that help us build this like seven generation ahead type of future. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Like, we don't have to agree on every step by step. True. But let's be together as we build this thing. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that would be... Yes, yes, 100%. Because uh, a unified, a unified society doesn't necessarily mean a society without argumentation in the same way that a marriage doesn't imply no fighting. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a matter of how do you settle these things in that same way. So yeah, I agree. Like in a unified, in a unified future, in my unified future, it doesn't mean that there aren't, um, 
uh, debate, it actually probably means that there's more debate in a very real way. And I think that's what curiosity means. I've, I've always kind of felt like I'm a very curious person almost by nature. You know what I mean? When I enter into dialogue with people, uh, I mean, even with you, even as a case study with you, when we really dive into some subjects and shit, I feel like I come to the table fully prepared as a scholar. You know what I mean? With like, I have a whole host of ways that I see the world, but I also know that I've only arrived at the way that I see the world because of my encounters with people, because of the questions that I've asked, which is to say that like, I'm only... I only believe the things I believe and think the things I think because I've taken the time to learn. And so I truly try to uh, approach every interaction as the opportunity to learn. I think that's, that's what curiosity truly means, right? right? I, I love interacting with people and really just talking with anybody. I'm a very social person that way. And I approach my interactions with other human beings as a way to learn not to just use them for my knowledge, but to really use it as an opportunity to learn. I, curiosity creates connection. Like that's what it does first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I think anybody who approaches you and is truly curious about you or your story or the way you see the world, you are connecting with that human being if it's coming from a legitimate place. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think part of what, and, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like for you as a professor, What's just as important as learning is unlearning. Oof. Right? Oof. Like you, I think you got kids that come to you having learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And then part of your job is, hey, let, let me help you unlearn some things. Mm-hmm. And imagine like without curiosity, again, that's not possible. Mm. Either side of it is impossible. One, to learn, to be open to feeling like, hey, there's some things that you know, and I think for you as a scholar, as a doctor, people look at you and they're willing to learn from you, but are they willing to unlearn from you? Right. Cause sometimes your kids can do that. Mm-hmm. But I think what we do as adults is we're not willing to unlearn from one another. Come on now. <laughs> I think that's it. That's absolutely it. That's, that's it. 100%. And I would say the more that I've been in higher education and teaching, and at this point it's over a decade now, I feel like I've started to learn that that is my job in some way. It's not teaching uh, students in a way that's giving them or bestowing knowledge upon them. I feel like if anything, I'm unlearning, unlearning them. That's what I'm doing. I'm making them unlearn so much uh, because by the time that they arrive to me, they've, they've learned a whole hell of a lot according to them, you know what I mean? They feel like they have the world pretty much figured out. Uh, And I'm like, fools, you're only 19 years old. What the hell do you even know? First of all, like half the shit you believe is just been drilled into your head and you haven't actually bothered to question it. Your beliefs and your, your framework of the world is the framework that you've inherited as opposed to the framework that you've bothered to critically question and really say, oh, that makes sense or, oh, that doesn't make sense or is there another possible way? So I feel like more than half, because I spend, as you know, the, the course I teach is a year-long course. I would say two-thirds of that year is spent engaging in conversations which lead to unlearning. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think that's the thing is part of what we need to unlearn as a country is what does it mean to be an American? Mm. Right. Because I think we have certain notions of Americanness that mm-hmm. are very toxic and that have gotten us to this point. Like, I think there's a certain um, definition of patriotism that Bro. took people to the Capitol to think <laughs> they are doing the most patriotic thing. Like mm-hmm. they are true Americans. And I, and I want to say that, you know, it's like there's a part of me that wants to even vilify the the other side, whatever whatever that means here. Sure. But it's like, how can I say that while, how can I hold their humanity in hand to say, hey, I also understand what it means to be so afraid that you can go to a length, that type of length. Like, I've never done anything like that in my life, but... Mm. I don't want to separate myself from feeling like that's not me, you know? And I think, again, that's part of what it may take to create this unified future is that the moment we can't see ourselves in any type of person, you know, Mm -hmm. whoever they are, whatever they do, 
we 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 create a wider gap, a wider schism. I live in the United States of America, but let's be honest, we don't live up to our name. Unity is often described as a state of being undivided or, or unbroken completeness or totality with nothing wanting. Unity, it, it denotes a combining of all the parts, all the elements and, and individuals into an, an effective whole. So let's stop for a second and do a quick inventory. Are we interested in unity? Because from the looks of it, we live in a world that is more interested in being right than being unified. We live in a world that is more interested in telling others they're wrong than being unified. We're more interested in our way than any other way or another way, the way of unity. See, if our beliefs don't unify us, you don't have to change them. Change how you relate to people who have different beliefs. This isn't about living in a world where everyone agrees. This is about living in a world where we don't have to agree to walk side by side, where how we believe is more important than what we believe. Because we will always live in a world where people see things differently. That's a good thing. What unifies us is holding those beliefs with an open hand, being curious about what we may be missing out on and being compassionate for the other side. You see, that's where unity comes from. That's what our future looks like. And now that we understand the role that compassion and curiosity plays in theory, what does that look like in practice? A couple of weeks back, the From the Future with Love team got together to do what we thought could be a recap episode at the end of the first season. And talking about who we are and how we came together It all stemmed from these two things, compassion and curiosity. Our team that came together, like the one that we constructed is is the world that actually I'm talking about. It's this future that we're imagining. You see, we came together under circumstances we never thought we would face. During a global pandemic and a time of political change, all while caring for ourselves and our loved ones as best we can. And instead of choosing a reason to stay separate from one another. We chose to join forces and create. We get to build something incredible together and we feel honored to do it with people who are different from us. It isn't a chore. It isn't an obligation. It's a privilege. We get to invite people into, one, how we make decisions. Two, it's like, much of life is not clean. Much of life is messy. And sometimes you can see the clean curated thing that you present to the world, but then you don't see the mess that was there before to get to the thing that we present to the world, right? And I actually think, I agree, Hammond, and we've all talked about this. I think if we're going to move forward, like if we are going to actually heal, if we're going to get better, if there's no longer going to be these huge dividing lines, we need to set a table that all of us can sit at. And I think that's why we had the heart in the beginning to say, hey, let's do this thing where I can be a part of um, healing in my own way. And then (laughs) what we realized was like, well, what if that's not accepted at face value? Is Is it worth the risk? Because then we start to manage conversations. And what at least what I experienced online was there. Like it was just like attack and then define you without actually being open to dialogue. And I think that's part of what makes it really difficult right now in the internet era is that we hide behind screens and we tear people down instead of inviting people into a healthy dialogue about, hey, look, no matter what your skin color, no matter what your religious creed, no matter what your political party, we do need to come together. And, and I think we're in one of the most divisive times, at least that I've experienced so far being alive. Some people say potentially in, in American history. I don't know if that's true, but it is so divided that a part of me thinks, and maybe this is a future episode, will America be one country in the next 10 or 20 years? Like, will we become two separate countries? Mm-hmm. Because I think we're functioning like mm-hmm. that right now. 
yeah. you know we're 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 not we're not the united states of america we are very much factions of people doing what we think is best and part of part of what i think the travesty is right now is we think our perspective is the truth well it's hard to be the bad guy in your own story right yeah i feel like after these 4 years and especially this year the country is actually fundamentally divided like, Big it's time. crazy. I have, you know, a couple friends who are conservative, but, you know, we can still engage in conversation. I understand the perspective. And then there are some people who literally just, you know, share and their voice is completely the opposite from what I believe. And then they're like, let's just, just be friends. But I'm like, let's talk about this. No, this is the way I think. And this is the way it is. And it's mm-hmm. like, when did our egos get in this way? Why do we have the audacity to think this? You know, just it even with the still non-concession of the election, it's like, this has never happened in the history of the United States. Like, this right, is right. In the history of the United right. States, this has never happened. And mm-hmm. the violence that happened last night, the protests that happened from the, the right, I mean, it was, in, like, it's divided and it's so frustrating. Well, and so, and, and part of even my heart is telling me right now is like, as people listen, let's give some descriptives about who we are because part of what I love about this show is like we're all different types of people you know and especially when it comes to a show that you listen to part of me wishes like we could interact with people just through voice because then we don't have those biases you know we don't have our prejudices we don't have the racism because now you're like oh I'm, I'm listening to somebody as opposed to seeing them and then judging them based on what I see while that being, you know, as that being said, it's like, I want you guys to kind of give a little bit of a snippet of like, Hey, here's, here is my racial background. Here is my religious background. This is where I come from. And, and, you know, this is part of why I even wanted to be part of this show. Cause I think, you know, who I am is a part of the story as well. Well, I'll start. So, uh, you know, first things first, Y'all are Americans. <laughs> I'm a Canadian. Yes. So I'm an outsider. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of what I do is like help facilitate these conversations for you. Because like as much as I provide my input in what, what the show is about and what we talk about, I feel like a lot of the conversations are centered around, around your experiences mm-hmm. and what, what is happening right now in America, right? Yeah. And so as a Canadian, I don't have much say. <laughs> I just, you know, I exist outside of, I exist outside of the sphere and I'm just here to support and help. And I feel like, yeah, facilitation is like one of the things that I would identify with as, as a role for this specific podcast. Tell us a little bit about your cultural background. You know, I want, I want, even, even okay, maybe we can talk about the whole mispronouncing your name <laughs> story. <laughs> sure. sure. So my name is Rithu. Uh, I'm South Indian and I have traveled a lot all over the world. And my parents finally decided to settle our family in Canada uh, when I was 10. Now I'm 25, uh, going to be 25. And yeah, I. Uh, it's funny because when, when Johan and I first met, um, we actually e-met because of COVID. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, I reached out to him. I think we were talking about something that he posted on his story and we continued talking. And then Johan suggested that we e-meet and we discussed the podcast and that's how we, our relationship started. And that eventually trickled down into me meeting Matthew and Hammond. And that's how everything kind of formed for, from the future with love. And so the thing that Johan was mentioning was the fact that I I often have my name mispronounced. My name is Rithu and people say Rithu, uh, Ruth, Ruthie. It's just <laughs> a, it's a flurry of different things. And uh, Johan now actually, he coaches me. And uh, in one of our discussions, one of our conversations, uh, I corrected myself or I corrected the way that he pronounced my name without actually correcting him and saying, my name is Rithu. I just pronounce my name correctly. 
And I think Johan got, <laughs> he got <laughs> just blindsided because uh, he's like, have I just been saying your name wrong for the last <laughs> like eight months? And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just kind of a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. And um, I think, I think it centered a lot around uh, and the way that I phrased it was that it was a lot of emotional labor for me to, to, you know, go, go ahead and have someone or say, actively say, my name is Rithu, please pronounce it correctly. Because my entire life I've been doing that. That's just been something that I've had to constantly do. And it got to the point where I would introduce myself and say my name correctly but then I would never correct anyone after that. I would always use my name in the right um, in the right pronunciation. And if people didn't catch that, I didn't bother correcting them. And 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 the thing is, it's like it's, it's fascinating to see how something that most people bypass, which is like not telling people to pronounce your name correctly, can turn into a conversation about self advocacy which I think is actually one of the most potent conversations that we can have as human beings, because I think, and, and this can connect back to even a race conversation is like, what would it look like, you know, if all of us started to advocate for ourselves um, in, a, in a larger context? Because to talk about, like, this is my name, people mispronounced my name, and I was allowing it. And then it turned into me discovering the importance of, or even asking myself the question, am I sitting on ways that I can advocate for myself, what would it look like if I started to advocate for myself in the ways where I've been quiet? Like, how would that change my life? Well, to that point, uh, I have always been incredibly uh, unwilling to toot my own horn about anything. And this pandemic and podcasting in general has kind of taught me that when someone asks you to do a thing or an opportunity pops up, you kind of jump in and kind of either learn it as you go or you know, try to try to make the best of it you can and learn something out of it. And as far as the show goes, you mentioned it in passing when we were having a conversation with a mutual friend. Yeah. And I was like, I stopped the show and said, hey, if you're serious about this, we'll talk afterwards. Yeah. And we talked afterwards. Give us some descriptors about who you are, Hammond, um, where you live, what you're all about. My name is Hammond Chamberlain. I've been podcasting since 2013. Before that, I spent six years as a crisis worker in the Salt Lake County Jail. And then I spent another 10 years working as a drug and alcohol rehab counselor for adolescents and lockdown facilities. And I also worked with the Salt Lake City Courts, uh, evaluating people for release from jail based on risk. So lots of lots of opportunities to work in and around law enforcement and basically working to give lots of people second chances to kind of the opportunity to dig out of the hole that they might've been in. And as far as podcasting goes, I've always tried to kind of be a more positive, like always kind of leave a smile or a joke on someone's mouth or whatever. And, and with this show, it's positive because I have two daughters. Uh, one's going to be 16 soon and one's uh, 11. And I think the world is kind of a mess right now. And I think that by being part of this, I'm actively trying to do something to clean the world up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So I live in Salt Lake City. Uh, I went to college here. Uh, I'm not part of the predominant culture. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> it's an anomaly in and of itself. But I was an only child. My dad was military. We lived, I went to 14 different schools in 11 years of school. My, my, you know, we lived, I spent, by the time I graduated from high school, I spent more time overseas than I had in the States. So the idea of, of being a, in, in a weird way, uh, seeing what it's like to be a minority, even though here in the States I'm not, did help adjust my worldview so that I have uh, an understanding of what it's like to not be the majority in a room or in a school. And I think that's informed a lot of how I, I live and make choices in what I do. And, you know, I will say this, like, because I do feel, I, so I believe that the universe conspires for us and not against us. And so one of the ways that I saw that was the way that Hammond and I connected, the way that. Rathu and I connected. And then even the way that Matthew, 
who ended up being a part of the show, who, you know, you weren't a part of the original conversations, but even the way that that transpired, you know, I feel like there's something to me divine about this team. There's something transcendent about the way that our paths have converged. And it does feel, and that's part of why I even wanted to create this concept of a show, which is like, what if, you know, time travelers, and even within that, there's something otherworldly about it, decided to come back in time to help human beings where we're at now. Because I feel like that's even how we came together as a team. I love it. I love it. Mr. Mr. Jones. Yes. So first I'll give some descriptives about myself. I am a Black guy in Los Angeles. I identify as gay and I love Jesus and I'm a Christian. So I'm kind of a unicorn um, when it comes to all of that. But the reason why I... Well, so I'm coming from the future of someone who has like nonprofits and makes films and movies that are just about so many different issues in the world. And the reason why I was attracted to the show is because I feel like I have a huge heart. And when I see, you know, some stuff happening in the world, or there's a conversation about something, I really try to impact some sort of change. So what I love is how the show evolved into multiple issues. I cared about them deeply. I cared about a lot of things deeply. I wanted to be a part of this to really help shape shape conversations, um, to help people think differently. Because as I said earlier, we're in the divided states of America. And, you know, of course our show can be, and it is actually streamed by people worldwide. But I just have such a heart and passion for helping people just search for the good and find the good at the end of things. And I feel like, you know, the racism thing can be stopped if we just stop hating, you know, and search for that good and that truth and that cancel culture. You know, that's one of my favorite episodes where, you know, it's about forgiveness of people. Oh my gosh, what a concept, but we can cancel them and just keep moving on and stay angry at them. But is that a way to live? You know, is that what life is about? Yeah. And I think, and that's why to me, it's like our, really the existence of this group is representative of, I think, what we all want to see in the world. And I say the world, not just America, because even, you know, Rathu introduced this idea of like, hey, I don't, I'm not a part of America. I'm not, I'm not a citizen of your country. <laughs> but what I could see, like, what's really dope within her is she, she still cares about America. Like she, you could see. <laughs> I know you were posting you election know? stuff. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Yeah, and she's, <laughs> and she's like so invested in some of the things that we're experiencing as Americans where I'm like, I like I, I don't think, I don't know that much about Canada. Yeah, I, don't. <laughs> I, I feel like I don't know as much as you know about America. You know, we're, we're this hodgepodge, you know, this hodgepodge group of individuals from different parts of the world, different walks, walks of life where I think most people, if they look at us, they wouldn't be like, those those folks get along, yeah. you know, or, or those folks are a part of a tribe. And that I would say that's always been a part of my vision for humanity is that we would look like this, you know, that we would be creators who ha- who share a heart and move forth to make the world a better place despite what we look like, because that's not the point, despite the labels that people put on us because those aren't separating markers, you know? Those aren't reasons why to stay away from people. They're actually, you know, I would say reasons why we lean in and we create together, we get more curious, we develop more relationship, we ask more questions, you know? And I'm grateful for that because I think for me, this group being together and creating is the future. The last episode of From the Future with Love, season one, will be one that is near and dear to my heart. As a soon-to-be father to a daughter, I turn to the fathers of the wonderful woman in my life. I'm going to ask them questions and learn more about their experiences. We're going to look back on all the stories, the ups and the downs, the good, the bad, all the triumphs. I just want to hear from them, their perspective, their wisdom. I will also be sharing a very personal, intimate letter that I've written to my daughter-to-be, Isla. And actually, she's going to be born any day now. We're counting down the days. My friends, you will not want to miss this episode. 
From the Future with Love was written and performed by yours truly, Johan Martinez Kalilian, produced by Rithu Jagannath and Matthew Jones, executive produced by Jason Jaggard, fact check by Rithu Jagannath, editing, mix, and tech production by Hammond Chamberlain, photography by Jess Kaler, and graphic design by Ivan Lizarde. <laughs>